Welcome to episode 11 of Wallflowering with Litwits, and we have a really special guest with us today, and that is Komal Mam from the English department. And we're going to be talking about the evolution of Disney princesses. So, Komal Mam, um, why is this topic important to you? Like, why did you want to talk about it? Um, for many reasons, actually. So, number one is, of course, because... I think we've all grown up watching Disney princess films and um, fantasizing this idea of being a princess and having this prince charming and all of those things. Um, And I grew up that way too, until I started noticing things that I found problematic. Um, that, That, at least when I was studying it, not many people were talking about. Um, that not many people were noticing, that not many people even considered, right? And um, that, that's what I think is problematic because with children's literature, children's fiction, children's film, children's cinema, a lot of times what happens is that people don't think of it as serious literature or serious cinema. They think of it as children's entertainment and therefore dismiss it as not significant and not important and not to be taken too seriously. Um, But that's the problem. It's precisely because it's children's literature and children's cinema that it needs to be taken even more seriously than everything else because um, children are very impressionable and uh, everything that they're exposed to, they sort of soak it in far more than we do as adults. Um, and, and that's why this was something that interested me, something that I wanted to um, read more into, talk more about. And, and, um, and of course, there's, since I started my study first, there's been um, an increasing amount of research that is done uh, surrounding films in general, especially in children's cinema. Um, and that's great, but we still have a long way to go. So, yeah, so that, that's my reason why. So before we um, start with the actual films, we just have a few generic questions for you about what we'll be looking at when we um, sort of look at the different princesses. So the question is, what approach should one take while trying to apply feminism to a Disney princess movie? Um, There's no one approach, really. it 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 all comes down to which film and which period. Um, and you don't really, really get to apply feminism to a film. You can see a film in a feminist context, in a feminist perspective. Um, there is no one approach, like I said. It, it It's basically defined by which culture, which film, for whom, um, which period, and who's reading as well. Um, So there is no one way to go about it. There is no one way to understand it. However, um, I think, again, it's important to contextualize films. It it is important to um, contextualize films in terms of the age, the time, the place that it was written, made in, um, because that often helps you understand it in a better way. Who made it is significant. Uh, what went into or which individuals went into the making of the film is again something that we often overlook but it's significant right Um, so what was the cast and crew like how many of these were women Um, 
which age was it made in? What was happening around uh, uh, that particular place in that particular period, right? All of those details actually enable you to fill in a lot of gaps that wouldn't otherwise make sense um, as to why the film was made the way it was made, right? So if you contextualize it, I think that's that's a good enough approach because um, there is no one feminism. There, there are multiple plural feminisms and um, feminism, therefore, as a movement itself is contextually defined. It is It is highly nuanced and you cannot leave that out of any study. So I think the best approach would be um, a very subjective approach, a flexible one that takes into consideration the context in which a film is made. Yeah. All right. Okay. So the next question we have is that, uh, you know how most Disney princess movies and films perpetuate gender discrimination in some way or the other. So apart from the obvious stereotypes that we see, uh, what are some other examples uh, of gender discrimination in movies? Huh. Interesting question. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we often focus on the most obvious ones, the the, the basic points of uh, stereotypical uh, portrayals like the damsel in distress who's rescued by this stereotypical knight in shining armor, this uh, tall, handsome, romantic prince. Um, however, beyond these very obvious and uh, equally problematic representations, there are also problematic representations in terms of body shape and body type. Um, I think we've, to some extent, and perhaps when we get to the discussion on movies, uh, I'll be able to justify that better. To some extent, we moved away from stereotypical uh, portrayals in terms of uh, a weak female protagonist or a female protagonist lacking voice and agency. We, we are moving slowly but surely away from those portrayals. But we're still not moving away from portrayals of um, a particular body shape, a particular body type, a particular color, right? Uh, we don't often see representation of the trans community, for example, in animations or other marginalized LGBTQ plus individuals in animations. You don't see them featuring as protagonists. You don't see um, races, different races, right? Other than movies that um, you can really count on your uh, fingers, in most white culture is still predominant. Um, and all of these are problematic things, right? So if we understand animations as a source of children's entertainment, we also understand animations as a source of uh, behavioral conditioning for ch children, right? And uh, everything that is shown in Disney films um, is in a way going to concretize further certain societal norms uh, in young minds. And that is not something we can overlook, right? And therefore, I think more representation of diversity, uh, inclusivity, of uh, to a greater extent in animations is the need of the art. So although we are moving away from very traditional gender discriminatory portrayals, we are still not moving away from heteronormativity, for example, um, or uh, uh, body image of a very specific conventional stereotypical kind. And those are equally important. We need to move away from those as well. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, 
so uh, Walt Disney Company was established way back in 1923, and at that time there weren't many women in filmmaking. Uh, so over the years there have been like many women who have uh, started like you know taking active part in filmmaking. So uh, do you think that this inclusion of women in filmmaking has changed the ways in which women are portrayed in the movies as well? Um. Yeah. to a great extent yes because if you if you look at um statistics on how many women become part of the cast and crew of a film um and place that alongside the kind of portrayals of women you find in film you will see that there's a there's a direct parallel you find there the more the number of women working on the film the more likely is the film to be uh talking about uh female strength and power and empowerment and um all of these amazing feminist things and the less the number of women working on the film uh the less likely is the film so i'm not saying that um having women on the cast directly impacts that i think there are many many things in play here uh because when when we talk about um women becoming part of the profession we are also talking about evolution of society alongside that is happening uh, and automatically there's a changing mindset there are changing attitudes towards women which automatically feed into the thematic content in films um however i do believe that uh, having women as creators is important in telling women's stories um we need more female voices in um conveying feminine narratives and i think for a long long time we have uh, heard of feminine experience female lives um from uh, male voices or male perspectives and i think the moment that changes and the moment we allow more space and more voice to women um we will hear of better female stories or more women centric narratives which again is the need of the hour i think so inclusion of women in filmmaking um will be beneficial i'm not sure if it has already changed the women women are portrayed in movies because uh, like i said even though there are more women today uh, working in uh, the film fraternity we have more and more women uh, being represented on in the cast um but but they're still stuck in stereotypical fields right so even if there are more women working on films they are still working in uh, let's say the costume department or the wardrobe department or the makeup department right which are again stereotypical feminine fields um and if you look at statistics on how many are actually involved in um the writing aspect or the special effects and visual effects or um the camera and electrical department there's very little representation of women in those uh, uh male fields right masculine fields and um uh, that needs to change and as that changes everything else will also change i think uh it goes without saying that more representation of women uh as leaders as creators as writers as storytellers will automatically change the narrative stories and norms that we create about women so yeah it will change for sure yeah 
um so um now uh, we will look at some iconic disney princess movies and i thought uh, to start uh, this uh, session why not talk about cinderella like that is the most iconic disney princess movie ever and it started the whole prince charming thing and it was uh, famous when it was like writ- originally written by Ch- uh, charles perrault but uh, it actually became pretty like well known around the world when disney made its own version of cinderella and that movie is uh, still popular today like every kid knows the story of cinderella so why do you think that uh, cinderella is so popular Uh, <laughs> why do i think cinderella is so popular for every reason i think it's it's the perfect tale of um 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 again growth towards riches the rags to riches story uh, which is always fascinating whether you're a boy or a girl i think the rags to riches tale is uh, uh, fascinating to both right the idea of emerging out of your uh, miserable uh, state of poverty to uh, this uh, royal life as a princess is something that is fascinating in itself um add to that uh, the the journey that cinderella takes uh, out of her miserable life as someone who is constantly living this uh, life of almost uh, slavery uh, in the house and then uh, rising to the state of absolute luxury as a princess i think that's that's what the charm is all right that is why um it is popular because we have um all been uh, led to believe that um uh, that would be the ideal life right for a girl uh to 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 be rescued from her life of misery without her having to do anything by herself uh by a certain prince charming it's exciting it's um uh, fascinating it's also charming to think about um and i and i think that for a very long time we as women have been trained that that's our goal for life uh, that we need to be waiting on this prince charming to come and rescue us from our struggles our troubles um our miseries right and i think that's that's the charm for cinderella uh this this almost dream like transformation of life um without having to do anything by herself right there is there is hardly anything that cinderella does by herself um even even the mere act of going to the ball um she doesn't manage it by herself right she needs she needs help she needs address she needs a carriage uh, she needs magic right um it's not something that she can take care of using her own resources her own intellect none of those things are required right it's almost a magical transformation um and 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 we are led to believe that that's not only possible in real life but also desirable for women um so we've all made it into uh, a story that Uh, we all wish to have in our own lives this life of comfort and luxury yeah um so uh, this movie like stands for everything what uh, feminism opposes so like what is your take on that um i agree 
it does sort of defy everything that feminism um, promotes in many ways. Um, but but again, contextually speaking, that that was what it was like. I mean, it's 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 not a film that is based um, on uh, feminism, but it is definitely a film that is very close to reality. That's what women are conditioned to believe that there will be a prince. Um, I mean, it may not be the same in terms of a prince charming or a ball, right? It's 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 more of a um, cinematic representation of something that is really the case. Women are trained to do household chores. Women are trained to be uh, responsible homemakers. Women are trained to be uh, meek and submissive and obedient, uh, just like Cinderella is, and never oppose and never question and never talk back. Uh, but to bear in silence, those are lessons that we've all received. Those are lessons that we've all also internalized in many ways. Um, and all of that, all of those qualities that you internalize of being meek and docile and submissive and kind and gentle and always polite and always smiling and always singing um, are supposed to be qualities that are going to eventually win you the man of your dreams and the man of your dreams is essentially a man that you can uh, rely on and depend on for the rest of your life which is the happy ending that we are all looking for right and it's problematic um, but it's true um, so yeah it does go against what feminism stands for but but I, it's realistic in its portrayal I would say it 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 actually shows what women's condition is like, and therefore it can be um, a film that is very revealing in terms of um, the patriarchal structure itself and how it functions. Um, the Disney version of this movie came in 1950, and the world has changed a lot since. So, um, how is the movie interpreted in today's world? Um, I, I would like to think that we, we, we see it as problematic today. Um, I, I think in many ways and many modern retellings of Cinderella, uh, also go against, uh, the conventional stereotypical representation that we saw in the classical film. Um, so yes, we have moved away from the ideas. Uh, that the film really uh, <laughs> posed before us then. Um, have we changed as a society? To some extent, yes. I don't believe entirely, but at least we are talking about it more. At least we are a lot more aware of the uh, problem areas in the film. Um, and in some ways we are trying to um, undo that conditioning in our own ways, not everywhere perhaps, and not uh, everyone maybe, but um, at least that has started. So, uh, I mean, it's a long time since the film first came out um, and given how much time has gone by, I'm not sure if we've made enough progress. Um, yes, we have made some progress. Is it enough? I don't think so. I think we could do better. Uh, and I think... Uh, it's it's time we let go of the Cinderella dream version uh, and look more critically at 
uh, Cinderella, the more practical, realistic version, uh, and also the more empowering version. <laughs> I think I think that's not happened entirely yet, not yet, but at least we are getting there. We're talking about it. The fact that we are having this this discussion, even this dialogue, um, is promising of change, and I like that. Yeah, the 2021 version of Cinderella was kind of different, a bit bad, but still yeah. different from what it was in 1950. So maybe it will be uh, better in the future. I guess so. I And, and it's, it's great that we have retellings because it, it gives me hope that there are other ways to do the same story, right? That, that I mean, Cinderella can still exist, but differently. Um, and I, I love adaptations. I love retellings. I love uh, recreations of past stories because, um, to me, it's also it's also symbolically a way of undoing the past. Um, symbolically, it's it's beautiful. I like that. Yeah. So the next one is Sleeping Beauty, and um, depending on which version you read, it, a lot a lot of the details are going to vary. Um, but yeah, I think we just, I, I want to ask like, in what ways have, um, women been objectified in this movie? Um, so I'm going to focus mainly on the, uh, the earliest Disney version of Sleeping Beauty, which is also the most, the first most popular version of Sleeping Beauty. Um, well, the entire film is uh, full of objectification, mainly of Sleeping Beauty herself. Um, and, and she becomes this uh, central figure that is objectified the most. And perhaps the only one that's objectified actually in the film, um, because, because there, is, there is no other character uh, uh, in the film, I think, that gets objectified. Because all the other characters are actually not even humans in the sense that they're fairies. Uh, the women especially. So she is the one who is the central figure. She is also, uh, ironically, the central figure that has no role to play in the film. Uh, so she is the protagonist that lacks all action, which is which is ironic. Um, she's personified as uh, uh, someone with gold sunshine in her hair, uh, she's got red lips that are like a red rose. She uh, dreams of true love. Uh, she dreams of this prince charming, uh, riding out of the dawn uh, on a horse and coming to rescue her. And um, yeah, her objectification is mainly tied to her physical body, right? Uh, even even when you when you watch the film and you have that scene where the fairies come to gift things to uh, Aurora. Uh, all they gift her uh, is, again, uh, physical attributes, right? You, they, they gift her um, beauty and they gift her the gift of song. Um, the way she talks should be soft-spoken. She should have a melodious voice, for example, right? Um, which again uh, is another way of emphasizing the physical attributes of a woman's body. Uh, it all comes down to the body, right? Whether it's the rose lip, rosy lips, or the um, beautiful blush on her cheeks, or the gold sunshine in her hair, 
it is all marking out parts of her body as um, objects uh, uh, that are attractive, objects that are uh, out on display, um, and that can be purchased in a way. Remember, Aurora in the story is also uh, a, 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 an object to be traded off, right? In the beginning of the film itself, you are told that um, Aurora as a baby is already betrothed to the prince, a prince, a certain prince, and uh, she is supposed to bring together the two kingdoms. So she becomes, again, an object that is bartered by the family in order to bring peace to the kingdom or uh, make this union of the kingdoms happen. So right from birth itself, Aurora is objectified as um, um, a commodity of uh, barter, commodity of extreme uh, physical charm and appeal, but nothing beyond that. You don't see Aurora uh, as having a personality or an intellect that goes beyond the physical attributes that uh, she is limited to. So yeah, the objectification is constant and uh, that's the only thing uh, associated with her character that you see in the film reading. Yeah. All right, so next we have uh, Mulan. And I feel like it's one of the first stories where Disney made it a point for the first time, in fact, to bring attention to the pressures women face when it comes to um, expectations on how they should look and how they should behave and how their mannerisms should be, how their body language you know, should be. So uh, right. my first question for Mulan is that in the original ballad of the Mulan, uh, the soldiers aren't really angry at the, you know, gender reveal. Uh, in fact, they were simply amazed and shocked. Why do you think Disney um, made it a point to make the army buddies look like they were angry at the gender reveal? Um, I think I think the original ballad of Mulan is. Uh, I, I mean, when the gender reveal happens. Uh, it it it's it's more amaze and shock like you mentioned um because it's it's something that is not uh, associated with femininity right they did not expect it to be mulan right they didn't think it would be possible for a woman to have lived so many years with them and fought alongside for so many years um, because how can a woman experience that somehow um, the the anger or the aggression they experience at a woman daring to do that is not as great as their amazement at uh, seeing a woman as having the potential to do those things right so um, perhaps that came as an afterthought maybe maybe after their initial shock and amazement they uh, also expressed their fury or their rage, right? Um, Disney, I think, made it a point to highlight um, that anger that they experience. Um, in many ways, like you said, that I think this this film actually changed a lot of things for uh, Disney. I mean, in Disney films in general, in general, the trajectory. Uh, Mulan marks the beginning of what I would say a movement towards uh, more 
equal sort of representations. Um, so anyway, I think Disney is very deliberate in the portrayal of Mulan. This film, I think, makes a very conscious attempt at uh, talking about issues surrounding uh, women's representations, uh, stereotypes uh, surrounding women. So right from the beginning, you already know what the film is going to be about. You know already um, when uh, Mulan is being uh, uh, taken by her mother and her sister to this matchmaker in order to find a suitable partner, um, you can already see the stereotypes that are expected from her, right? When she makes these notes on her arm, then she's preparing herself to be this um, docile, submissive wife. Um, you already know that that's not what her life is going to be like because you've seen that already in her, right? And very significantly, it's a very deliberate sort of portrayal that Disney uh, shows to you that, that that's not what Mulan is going to do. And you're, you're prepared for that. You can see it coming. When it does come, and uh, when she does emerge as this powerful uh, warrior um, who who can uh, do things that even her male uh, buddies, army buddies, can't do, um, it's no longer just something that is amazing and astonishing. It is also something that is shocking because it is not acceptable socially, right? It is offensive. Um, it is also something that damages male reputation. The male ego is crushed because suddenly a woman is not only doing things that a man does, she's also doing it better. <laughs> she's also uh, beating them at their own game in a way, right? Um, and I think that's why Disney made it a point to show that aggression and that hostility when the gender reveal happens because... Um, it's a very deliberate attempt at showing, uh, uh, exposing the negative side of the patriarchal structure, which not only thinks little of women and considers women inferior, but also finds it very problematic when a woman rises out of that and uh, exhibits uh, her true potential and sometimes uh, a potential that is even greater than that you find in men. Um, and I think it's it's a deliberate attempt at sort of showcasing that, which is why I believe it, it was done that way. Um, so in a way, uh, do you think that uh, Mulan, I mean, the movie, stereotyped men a little bit, that they always have to be aggressive, they have to be egoistic, and all they care about is how, um, you know, their woman looks, or if, if she can cook, or if she can clean. So what do you think about that? Um, to some extent, yes, but the fact that they they showed that there were men who failed at performing certain tasks while while Mulan emerged uh, strong and victorious, that she was able to go through with some things that even men failed at. Um, and there was there was a weakling among the group. There was the one who was scared always. There was the one who had his. Uh, concerns about whether or not he wants to really be part of this whole thing is also rejected stereotypes, right? It is, they're not all bold. They're not all courageous. They're not all always ready to face um, what what's coming. Um, and, and that does undo uh, stereotypes towards men. In fact, the last bit with, um, I've forgotten the name, but, but the central figure, the hero, um, and 
his his portrayal in general and the fact that i mean there's no direct sign but you you get this indication that mulan might end up with him uh, and they're going to be a pair and they might end up married to each other um in a way it fits the stereotype the trope that you know she'll end up with the prince and they'll live a happy happy ever after sort of life uh but it is also a way of telling you that women can be bold and aggressive and strong and um be doing masculine macho things but still be attractive to men that they don't have to fit this uh idealized stereotypical uh notion of femininity in order to be charming to men um uh, that women can still find companions and partners um uh, even if they are uh, independent and fierce and um uh bold right and and that is something somewhat i mean in a funny way it fits the trope of the girl ending up with the boy uh and and yet in that also it it rejects the stereotype of um i mean imagine think of it if mulan had not perhaps ended up with the prince that would be telling you that yes you can be fierce and bold but then you're not going to be attractive to anyone that no one wants a wife like that right so by actually showing that the prince is still attracted to her uh, i i i think disney also tries to tell you that it's okay to be a woman who doesn't fit the stereotype it doesn't make you any less attractive in fact if anything it makes you even more charming right uh that you're true to yourself and you're true to who you are on the inside and that that is what makes you who you are um and uh people would like that about you right it makes it a desirable quality to be one true self rather than molding one into a a, a sort of mold that society has created for them um so yeah i think it it by by giving into stereotypes it defies stereotypes interestingly Okay. Um okay, so the next one is Tangled. Yeah. And um we don't usually we don't usually look at Rapunzel from this movie as a as a stereotypical Disney princess because she is very different. But um if you look at it from a rigid perspective there are some stereotypes that she um falls prey to like the way she looks and stuff like that. But um in what ways is she different from all the other princesses we've spoken about so rapunzel for me is is that in between film she is not entirely uh, a mulan uh, but is she the cinderella from uh, the first disney film right so she she i think to me is perhaps the best version i mean i am very fond of rapunzel she's probably my favorite princess because she to me is symbolic of where we are at right now for uh, i mean in terms of uh, women's movement i think she is where we are at we are we are sort of trying to balance what we've been for a long time the cinderellas um, and we're trying to move towards what we wish to be <laughs> eventually mulan but we're not there yet we're not 100% this all that yet so rapunzel is uh um uh, in many ways very stereotypical right she has lived in the tower she is obedient she's submissive uh she is uh, uh completely devoted to this uh, stepmother 
um, she is not rebellious, but at the same time, she is uh, ambitious. She has a dream. Um, she is courageous, right? Even with her fears, and that's what marks courage, right? Uh, she has her fears, she has her vulnerabilities, she is afraid of the outside world because she's never um, seen it before and she's only ever heard uh, horrid stories of the world outside from her stepmother. But she's willing to take that chance anyway, right? She's willing to push herself out of that comfort zone and face the consequences of those choices. So she is at once rebellious and vulnerable, at once bold and uh, shy and uh, uh, afraid, right? So, so she she marks this very interesting sort of in betweenness in the journey towards empowerment, where she is she is forcing herself out more and more, um, but it, it's not easy. the The journey is not easy, um, and at one point she almost gives up, right? And she almost feels like this was too much to take, and mother was right, and I should never have gone. Um, and yet again, she finds her way out of that. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I think she's my favorite because she in some ways defies the stereotype, but in many ways also fits the stereotype. And I feel it, I feel like it's the truest to most women's condition today, where we're not entirely there yet in terms of getting empowered. Um, but we are striving towards that and it's hard. Um, and we feel weak at times and we are fragile in many ways. Uh, and, and we still push ourselves constantly right and and then when she cuts her hair off finally it's 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 this moment of emancipation it's this moment of uh liberation um it's it's beautiful yes i agree and um what about the way they've treated the men in the movie eugene and any of the other men Those are also very interesting portrayals, right? Because I, I see, uh, again, a very deliberate defiance of the stereotype in the portrayal of men in this film in particular, right? Uh, Eugene is uh, not a prince. Eugene is not someone who is of noble birth. Eugene is not someone who is well-mannered and who is always the gentleman, right? Eugene instead is a roguish yeah, figure. No. Yeah, exactly. And then you also have the thugs. And that, that's another interesting thing, right? Because when you think of thugs, you think of machoism and you think of them being bold and courageous and aggressive and violent almost. Uh, but but there's there's another story to the thugs, right? Which, which is something that Rapunzel actually uh, draws out of them. And then you have this entire song where uh, uh, it is revealed to you that the thugs also have dreams and ambitions and aspirations of their own, where um, some one wants to be a florist and one wants to do interior design and one wants to bake cakes, cupcakes, right? And then there is one who collects ceramic unicorns, for example, right? So they're doing their own thing. Um, and again, all of those things that they want to do are not stereotypically masculine domains that they want to pursue careers in, right? Um, baking cupcakes, for example, or practicing interior design, for example, they are not very macho uh, professions or careers for men to choose. Um, and these are thugs, right? These are these are probably the most masculine figures you can find, and yet they have these almost what you would stereotypically consider feminine interests, right? And that and that's interesting to me because 
uh, Disney is trying to show you that you can be men and still do these things and want these things and have these dreams um, and aspire to achieve those. Uh, I, I like that too. Yeah. Um, so next we have Frozen. And again, um, you know, as, as Tangled and Milan, it's also one of the movies where, um, you know, the female is the lead character and there are ways in which Frozen sort of um, mocks stereotypes uh, from earlier Disney films, right? So uh, my first question for Frozen is that um, there's a very marked contrast in the personality and character of the two sisters, right? But both of them in their own way are feminists. And um, so how did they evolve into strong, independent characters that children today can take inspiration from? Like, even though, for example, Anna, she was, you know, obsessed with finding love. I mean, which is fine, of, of course. But um, again, it can be said that she was in a way, um, you know, taught that she had to find true love. Right. So uh, do you think both their growths uh, can be inspirational to like uh, girls in general? Yeah, I think so. Uh, and what Frozen does very beautifully is it shows you two, two sort of very different journeys uh, of two individuals, two women, um, and both in many ways empowering. Uh, so you have Elsa going on more of an internal journey within herself and coming to terms with her identity, with who she is, with the power she has, the magic within her, which which scares her, right? Which she is afraid of because it's it's it it, it puts her in a position of power that again women are not used to. Uh, women are not often put in positions of power, and it's it's scary. Uh, to come to terms with that identity, not only as perhaps the future uh, ruler of the kingdom, but also as this person who has the power to um, cause damage, to cause harm, to bring change, right? And, and, and that puts her in a position of vulnerability because she's scared of the power that she carries within herself until she goes into this sort of internal journey of coming to terms with it, uh, letting go of her fears and inhibitions, realizing that she doesn't need to be perfect for anyone, right? And then uh, that 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 beautiful song, "Let It Go," and becoming one with the wind and sky, right? Finding that freedom within herself to be her true self, uh, and embracing that. Um, and then you have Anna and going through a very different journey, but equally inspiring. Um, she is a girl who has uh, lived believing, and in many ways, then she's like Rapunzel almost, right? She's that she's that middle way, halfway between this and that. So she's grown up to romanticize about princes and uh, rich uh, uh, princes who will come and she can get married to and have a happy ever after with. But at the same time, even when she is um, sort of uh, enamored by Hans, uh, she is talking of love as an open open door. Love is, love is like an open door to her, right? It's, it's full of possibilities, endless opportunities. Um, also, this sort of freedom and liberation that comes with it, which is, which is not a, a very conventional idea you see associated with love. And then when, when she uh, is betrayed, uh, 
you see a very different journey that she undergoes as well, right? A journey with, uh, what was his name? I've forgotten the name of Christoph, right? A journey with Christoph where she uh, learns friendship and companionship and um, a sort of an equal relationship, right? He's not a prince. Uh, he doesn't believe in love at first sight. In fact, he mocks her when uh, he finds out about this one day love affair that she had with Hans and she's planning to get married to him, right? He finds that ridiculous because uh, he, he, he doesn't... Remember when, when you think of love at first sight, you're also thinking of women being valued only for their physical appearance because what else does love at first sight even mean, right? Uh, and, and he doesn't seem to believe in that. He doesn't seem to even like that idea at all. He, he almost mocks over that. Um, but then you see this relationship evolve and grow into something that is more than just infatuation, more than just physical lust, right? It, it, it matures into a friendship, a, a sort of dependence on each other. There are also many instances in the film where, um, and I'm talking about the first Frozen, where Anna is the one who saves Christoph. Um, in many situations, these uh, brief episodes of adventure where Anna is the one who um, uh, saves his life in a way, right? So, so there's there's a little bit of fitting into the stereotype, but also in many ways rejecting the stereotype. And um, it's it's done beautifully because it tells you that, yes, we have been like this for a long time, that women have been like Anna for a long time. But they're learning to let go of that and they're learning to move away from that and they're learning to find something better um, and something different. And um, they, will, they will make mistakes perhaps, but they will also learn from it. Um, and both, both Elsa and Anna sort of show that growth in their own different ways uh, of maturing into strong women. So next we have Maleficent. Uh, again, it's a very different movie from what we usually see, right? And uh, specifically through the character of Maleficent, we can um, observe many feminist ideals. And the movie, in a way, achieves this through the use of rhetorical strategies surrounding, um, you know, pathos and regarding violence against women specifically and female identity. And um, the representation of Maleficent in the original Sleeping Beauty compared to the representation of her in the new Maleficent movie is very different, right? So do you think that's uh, Disney's way of um, maybe uh, re uh, rewriting the norms? Like, because now in this movie, she's made the hero of the film, right? So what do you think about that? Yeah, I definitely think it's it's Disney's way of rewriting uh, uh, norms, rejecting conventions, and moving away from stereotypes. I think, and and it's done so beautifully in Maleficent. I, um, I I think of all the films that we are discussing, this ought to be my favorite one. Maleficent um, for me is is very different. Of course, it's not an animated film like the rest of them, uh, but but Maleficent is also not just a rewriting of um, an earlier story. Um, it also gives voice to something that we, that we completely overlook. Um, remember that Maleficent is a villain, right? In, in the original Sleeping Beauty version, she is the villain of the story. She is the bad one. Um, and, and you see her only as that in that film. You see her as this evil witch. 
you see her as uh, someone who's negative, bad, and uh, just that, nothing beyond that. This particular film gives a new dimension to that character, right? And you suddenly learn to understand where Maleficent is coming from. You suddenly see her as more than just an evil witch. Um, you see her as someone who's human suddenly, right? Um, and I think that's important because, because it's a way of telling you that there is no black and white um, in terms of characterization. There's, there's always this gray that we're all capable of more than just one, right? So the idea of the angel as opposed to uh, the demon or the angel and the monster, we've constantly functioned in terms of these binaries when we portray women, right? In cinema, in literature, we always have the angelic one and then we have the temptress, the seductress, the witch, the monstrous one, right? The, the one who does all wrong and then the one who puts up with all wrong and she's always good. Um, and somehow Maleficent sort of rejects that binary and that uh, representation. And we have Maleficent who's at once both. Um, she's been wronged. She's been betrayed. She uh, she has powers, but she's also vulnerable. She's also experienced um, great weakness and she's sort of risen out of that. And she's had her moments of um, making mistakes, erring in a way, and then also learning from that and growing and um, becoming a lot more loving in a way. So you see her growth, right? And uh, that, that journey that it shows is beautiful. So is Disney trying to rewrite? Yes, most definitely. And it's trying to give you uh, a different insight into what is usually understood in a, in a very singular fashion as villainous, as monstrous, right? What made her monstrous? Um, and uh, why is it that she became the way she did? Why is it that she cast that uh, uh, spell or that curse on uh, Aurora or uh, what are the reasons or uh, what kind of sufferings has she experienced in her life it it gives you a better insight on, into all of those things which I think is uh, significant we need to do that more um, and we need to look at villains especially female villains and witches and uh, all of these women that have been considered bad in the past differently and try and um, give a voice to those monsters. Yeah. Um, so the last movie that we are talking about uh, for our episode is one of the recent Disney princesses. And it was both critically and commercially a success. And that movie is Moana. And this movie is kind of different from all the previous Disney movies. So how do you think the representation of Moana is different? Um, Moana is very different in many ways, but I think the most uh, striking aspect of the film for me was uh, uh, it lacked any kind of a romantic plot. I think that that's what makes it stands out, stand out the most. Um, Moana is not, and she says it in the film as well, she's not a princess, right? She says, I'm the chief, but I'm not a princess. Um, so there's a sort of a rejection of the archetype there and uh, she she does it very deliberately. Uh, she doesn't want to be the princess, right? She doesn't want to be the weakling who waits on prince, uh, on a prince. 
um, she's rebellious by nature. She is um, driven. She is very, very determined. Uh, she is also not one to uh, sort of repress her emotions. She gives expression to it very vocally. She uh, is not one to repress her desires. She is going to go and chase it, right? And those are important lessons to teach uh, everyone, not just children, everyone, right? Um, but at the same time, you have this interesting character of Maui. And uh, although a male character, uh, I think Moana doesn't need Maui as much as he needs Moana. Um, interestingly, Maui goes through this journey himself of making mistakes. Uh, Maui is really, really messed up. And it is his mistake, his uh, errors that Moana sort of has to fix. I see the film on a very symbolic level, right? If you think of Maui, Maui as representative of men, they've messed up, right? The patriarchal structure has really, really messed up big time uh, our society. And, and somehow we need women to stand up like Moana and take charge and fix that in, in many ways. But at the same time, uh, women can't do it alone, right? Uh, Maui needs to up his game and join her in this change, in this um, sort of new world, right? And uh, and then you have the creator as another woman, right? A very powerful, again, representation of um, femininity and womanhood and create creation itself as something that stems from women, right? And uh, how fitting it is, therefore, for Moana to be in charge of uh, her island. And remember, she's she's probably the first female chief of her clan, her tribe. Um, because there's there's one instance in the film where her father talks about how his father and father's father and generations of fathers have been the chiefs. And now she's going to take over. But there doesn't seem to be any uh, element of hesitance in that. He's not thinking, oh, but you're a daughter and you'll, you'll have to be the chief, right? It's It's something that is, again, very natural to him. Uh, and he treats it as very, very natural, uh, which is, again, significant. It's beautiful. And then you have, again, uh, another, like I said, I keep I keep reading Moana as a very symbolic film. You have Maui and uh, his dependence on uh, that hook, right, that he carries. What was that? The fish hook or something of that sort, um, which is which is what is his tool, right? It's, it's, it's what gives him power. Uh, it's what makes him feel like he is complete. Um, in many ways, that appears to me as a very phallic symbol, right? It's it's um, it's it's something that he takes a lot of pride in. It is also something that when it is almost destroyed, that crushes him because he feels like his identity is tied to that phallic symbol, right? The phallus is a mark of his, uh, uh, I don't know, masculinity in a way. Um, and all through the film, right from the beginning, you see him as having the sense of pride in who he is. Very, very, again, uh, symbolic of masculinity, right? This sort of male ego, uh, this sense of superiority that I am the God and everyone loves me and everyone worships me, right? Um, and then and then when when um, it, it gets almost destroyed and eventually it gets completely destroyed, um, there's a point where uh, Moana, I think, tells him that, you know, you, you are still Maui. I mean, you don't have 
to be uh, with the fish hook in order to get a sense of self-worth, right? Uh, it doesn't make you any less of a man if you lack that phallus, right? Uh, that, that's not what gives you your identity. And, and, and then you see him also evolving and growing into coming to terms with himself and learning to let go of that sense of superiority a little bit. And, um, and, and that's where the two come to this sort of equal status and they sort of find that bridge between each other where, where they come together. Um, and, and it's a beautiful moment because to me, it's, it's very symbolic of uh, equality and these two sort of genders coming together. Um, yeah. So that's what the movie did for me. So I think this is all that we have time for. And um, I think just to end, we can clearly see how um, how Disney princesses and the movies have evolved over the past few decades. And I, I don't know, do you have any, any parting thoughts, ma'am? No, I'm, I'm so grateful for this. And uh, I had such a wonderful time and it's, 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 it's I think it's it's great that we are talking about it and it makes me happy that we we are having these discussions because it it's very promising to think of the future when when uh, I know that people are taking these things into conscious awareness and critically analyzing it and looking into it and that you have all of these questions is remarkable and the evolution is um, uh, the evolution that you see in films is also um, in many ways, uh, symbolic of the evolution we experience in our civilization itself. It, as we evolve, films will evolve, just like as films evolve, we evolve, right? It's it's, it's something that uh, uh, is a dual relationship. And uh, yeah, I mean, I have great hopes for the future because the kinds of films that are getting made today are very different from what I grew up watching. And I believe that is going to change the kind of individuals we have in the world around us. Uh, and hopefully we will, we will move towards a society that is um, better in every way, uh, equal, more equal, less discriminatory and more inclusive. Um, and that's my hope. Thank you so much for joining us today. You were an absolute Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Thank you guys. Thank you for listening to Wallflowering with Litwits. If you're interested in aesthetics, be sure to check out our Aesthetic Appeal series on Spotify and follow us on at the Scottish School on Instagram. Have a nice day. <laughs> <laughs>